A conversation with Maggie Buggy. This is the tech space brought to you by Alex Partners, a European founder-led executive search consultancy. Hello and welcome. I'm Giles Daniels, one of the founders at Alex Partners, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined for this episode of our Women in Tech mini-series, part of the Tech Space podcast by Maggie Buggy, COO at Normative. Before joining Normative, Maggie led global sales, commercial, engineering and customer success teams at SAP, Capgemini and Fujitsu. Maggie has an extensive experience building high-growth businesses that monetize intelligent technologies. She's a non-executive director at Spiron Communications and advisor to scale-ups. Now, Normative is the world's first carbon accounting engine. So, of course, we're going to be covering the subject of climate tech and the journey towards net zero. That said, given its breadth and depth, we're clearly only going to be able to scratch the surface in the half an hour or so that we have with Maggie. But this topic is something that we'll be revisiting in future episodes. And given her role at Normative and huge passion for the subject, we cannot think of a single better person to start this conversation with than Maggie. Maggie, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Giles. Pleasure to be here. Now, last time we met, uh, nice place to start this, really. Last time we met, you made a statement that that really made me smile. And um, that was, chaos creates opportunity. So can you just give me a little bit more colour around that? You you did love that phrase, but it's also uh, one of my favourites. I think it goes right to the heart of um, the philosophy really behind uh, scale-ups and um, those of us in the market that are seeking to use technology to solve some of the biggest problems in the world and also to create new markets. And um, what I mean by that statement is, uh, number one, an aid memoir to myself, that times that can feel quite chaotic when there is um, changing regulation, when there's new consumer pressure, when there is a very volatile macro environment, uh, when there's you know, a skill shortage, you know, I could go on, the list is long around the chaotic yeah. levers that yeah. are at play. But those times really represent a lot of opportunity. And One of the things I can see is that we really are at an interesting time in the market because we have multiple forces creating pressure for change. We have uh, a planetary imperative, you know, with the climate uh, crisis. We have a regulatory imperative with a huge amount of regulation, both local to the UK, such as the UK's streamlined energy and carbon reporting policies at EU level. Also, um, future legislation coming in the US around the SEC proposal. We've a huge amount of regulation coming into sustainability and uh, emissions management, but also we have significant pressure being exerted uh, by consumers who are increasingly uh, walking with their wallets and voting yeah. with their wallets, and also employees that we see now big shifts whereby employees are um, refusing to work with far companies and brands that don't have commitment sustainability, and also we have um, a great growing appreciation that we could be, um, how would I articulate it? We could be at the beginning of one of the biggest shifts in the understanding of business value, how it is defined, how it is created, how it's shared. And that has massive implications for how we create businesses, how we build businesses, how we run businesses and um, how we create market opportunity. So that's what I really mean by like, you know, these chaotic times that sometimes, of course, day to day can feel a little bit stressful. uh, But 
therein, if we look at the history of great businesses and segments over the last number of you know, decades, if we look back, a lot of those moments of inflection um, create some of the biggest opportunity and periods of innovation um, and some of the giants of the, of the technology space that we now know were created at one of the last big periods of chaos, which was obviously the post-global um, financial crisis. Maggie, you're always so engaging and have so many positive views on the sector and clearly excited by the impact of technology overall yourself. From starting out with big companies, you know, on a different part of the scale with normative. I hope that there are a few more women in tech now than in your early days, but you always give the impression that as a woman in tech yourself, you absolutely love it and do everything you can every day to move the needle. Well, yes, because we're only here for such a short time, Giles. And I think I, I really so think true. about that. And, you know, I'm like, I'm going to live hard until I'm dead. And like for me, my work is a huge part of that. I absolutely love my work. And I, I get to work with super smart people. And um, the, I think, a very exciting thing about being a woman in tech at the moment is that, and certainly in um, the spaces where, I mean, we get to build the companies in the way we want them to be. Because I'm also a big believer that successful alchemy leads to business growth to creating you know extraordinary things and to inventions that improve people's lives and the world we live in but it's also true that intelligent yeah. technologies and data and the kind of things we're talking about like artificial intelligence obviously all over the press at the moment like these pose many challenging economic and ethical qu- questions but one thing i'm very certain about i don't have all the answers on like ai threat or opportunity but i do know for certain we will not solve any of those problems if women remain in scarce in scarce numbers in our our fields. You know, it is a fact that if we only bring, you know, white, straight, middle-aged men into our boardrooms, government, schools and workplaces, we're going to have a big problem. And the, otherwise, the future will once again be shaped by a group of men behind closed doors. And I'm a yeah. big believer that we need individuals of all, you know, genders, ages, colours, sexualities, ethnicities, etc., to get involved in both the research, development and delivery of technology, as well as the discussion of its societal implications. And one thing I'm super proud about is um, because, you know, I'm in a position now where I get to decide how it is and how it should be. And on this point around inclusion and female representation, you know, at Normative, we're only a Series B stage company, but we're 42% female and we have 48 nationalities. Yeah, amazing. And um, yeah. you know, I won't be happy you get 50, further 50. quicker don't you? The, 100%. Th- that, that mix that mix in the melting pot you know it, business accelerates way quicker diversity multiculturalism multi- multiple nationalities true. And, you know and it, it, otherwise you end up with people that think the same you know you, and it's also true Giles that like and this is also why I'm such a strong proponent of our industry because it's also true that technology and financial services are amazing industries for women uh, they are and yeah. also you know I've, I've got no sad stories I've only got amazing wonderful stories of growth and opportunity and unfortunately humility lessons learned from mistakes I've made from our industry from our industry so so I really hope that, you know, we're going to see more and more women coming into uh, our industry. I'll certainly be dedicating oh. a huge amount of the rest of my time uh, here on this Absolutely. mortal coil to uh, to making sure that like uh, more women um, choose technology and financial services and stay in it. So, so, so st- sustainability is obviously at the forefront of everything that we see in the world today. And mm-hmm. normative, the, 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 as I just said, the world's first carbon accounting engine. So they're helping businesses to calculate their entire climate footprint and, and, yes. and re- reduce the green, greenhouse gas emissions. So a couple of things like that, obviously, the, the opportunity around that is obviously massive. I'd love to hear about that. But then I, I remember years ago, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago, talking about publicly quoted companies having to 
effectively report on their sustainability. And so, so how far are we from everybody having to report on that? And, and why is it not why is it not here now? Is it too expensive to implement? Or? <laughs> Great question. And actually, Giles, you know, for the record, we are there now. You know, there is a, a, I briefly referred to some legislation um, uh, earlier in our conversation. But um, at Normative, our mission is to make known and reduce sustainability impact of all uh, activities in the planet. And we're very much the carbon solution of choice for enterprises and their value chains. Like sustainability, as you've alluded to, is a highly complex area. And our product helps customers accurately report their emissions, take action and ultimately create business value. But the legislation is already here. Like, for instance, we have the UK's streamlined energy and carbon reporting policy that requires companies to share energy use and carbon emissions information in their annual reports. And this is yeah. where this is. The legislation in the context of that regulatory imperative I mentioned is really shifting board behavior because it's really touching the areas of compliance. We also at EU level have the, the European Commission has a, the CSRD adopted that replaces and builds on the non-financial reporting directive, which, introduce, which introduces much more detailed reporting requirements, but also has expanded significantly the number of companies that have to comply. And all large enterprises that do business in the EU, including those based outside of the EU, will need to disclose all of their emissions starting in 2024, including scope three value chain emissions. Um, we also have the SFRD. I have to say, Giles, this space is littered with acronyms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and also in the US, legislation is expanding significantly around the globe. We have, for instance, in the US, the SEC proposal uh, is underway at the moment. And really, you see here that the European Union is setting the global standard. And what we hope that we'll see is a some level of convergence globally around the regulation, yeah. because it has huge implications for businesses. It's interesting as well, because I've read quite a lot about you know, companies that to talk about what suits them, right? So the, the report on what suits them, but then miss out huge areas where they're not being sustainable, but just effectively don't talk about them. So I suppose that's that's the that's going to be a next evolution as well, isn't it? To, to, to sort of have the the regulation in line for everybody everywhere. So everybody's got to literally report the same stuff rather than pick and choose the bits they want to report effectively. True. And like uh, we talk about kind of, there is huge pressure for businesses to act beyond also just the reg the, beyond the regulation. And like in carbon accounting, we usually talk about like three gaps, a commitment gap, an accuracy gap and an action gap. And I think that goes right to the heart of what you're alluding to, because we have actually made huge progress on the commitment gap because there are thousands of enterprises now who have got publicly existing commitments to reduce their emissions, many of them working with normative, and that together, you know, they make up, you know, 0.3% of all large businesses worldwide. And that account for an estimated 77% of global carbon emissions from fossil fuels and industry. So this this means that wow. collectively we have huge potential to achieve net zero emissions with large businesses taking the lead and focusing on decarbonizing their entire value chains. And you know, it was World Earth Day last week, um, Giles, and you may have seen yourself, you know, a lot of the very negative and worrying sentiment about um, you know, global warming and lack of action on climate. But one of the many reasons I love working at Normative and in the sustainability space is that every single day, you know, I see the reason the huge reasons for hope. Because it is a fact that if we collectively can get all co 
companies on their net zero journeys, we have a huge opportunity to decarbonize um, value chains and respond to the planetary imperative. But also mm. in terms of the business opportunity, the energy transition and the global economy's transition to a low carbon uh, economy, that represents you know, untold business value creation opportunity, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, right to the heart of startups, scale ups and the and um, like around kind of like uh, hydrogen, for instance, we're seeing a huge amount of money yeah. going into at the moment and um, carbon, obviously, in our space, but also the sustainability data and the carbon data itself has a business value beyond um the regulatory element. And that's one of the things that I'm most excited about for our segment and market as we move forward, because typically I would say the vast majority of our customers come to us saying, oh, good God, get us, make it accurate. Let, yeah. Make sure that what we're reporting is compliant, is that completely avoids uh, greenwashing and help me engage my full value chain or supply chain and more normal in um, a lot of people's standard language on this journey with me. But the next step for most of them, Giles, is wow, this carbon data, accurate carbon data, has got a massive business value because when you apply carbon data then into other business processes, it can lead to a lot of interesting, actionable insights. So as a simple example, one of our customers in the Nordics, Elkel, the telecoms provider, you know, they came to us for emissions management. But a really cool thing was that we realized that once we had the baseline of data in place, that the insights from that data allowed them to um, deliver huge cost savings by optimizing driver routes to save fuel. Yeah. Now at a time where once again, we see that petrol is hitting, you know, a hundred dollars a barrel and people are very businesses are very concerned about like energy cost and um, they were able to um identify those kind of reduction opportunities yeah. but in a way that That's can be brilliant business yeah, yeah yeah and then also um switch to electric so we've lots of and then we also see chief marketing officers are already accounting for the impact of carbon and sustainability in in their brand equity uh, we also mm. see chief oper chief operating officers that are using carbon data and applying it in to core business process to, you know, make real key business decisions about like um, office management, space management, um, also in terms of manufacturing processes in the, co in the core yeah. design to operate one. And that's very much what I would say is the business opportunity represented um, by uh, sustainability generally and carbon specifically, because I would say, and be remiss of me not to, that uh, many boards are moving away from a practice of, oh, track everything that is, you know, in the UN's uh, 17 uh, goals. Um, and instead, they're drilling down into what is actually quantifiable, that is, um, that is not going to expose them to regulatory issues or compliance issues, but also the huge brand risk around um, greenwashing. Yeah. Um, and that is, I think, one of the most exciting things happening in sustainability today. From a climate perspective, are there some quick and easy wins for businesses. So um, what you've alluded to there is absolutely the behavioural commitment that all of us individually um, can make. And that's important in terms of driving individual behavioural change. And it's also a fact that for us to affect large scale change, getting big business to move is what is going to deliver the outcome. And the number one simple thing every business can do is to close what's called the accuracy gap. Now, the accuracy gap is the gap between um, the emissions a company calculates 
regulates and those for which it is accountable. And these discrepancies are largely the result of huge complexities within the value chain of large businesses. And due to those yeah. complex- complexities, businesses on average neglect more than 50% of their emissions, most of which are located in that value chain. So um, closing that gap and having an accurate baseline across um, all scopes one, two, and three in the entire value chain is the simplest thing business can do because actions taken, as we all know, on incomplete or bad data will have bad results and actually will lead to very negative chaos. And um, then enterprises that neglect 80% of their emissions in their their, uh, reduction targets. And we also know from our data that uh, more than 50% of net zero committed enterprises have no tangible plan about what to do next. So I would say that the call to action is number one, get make sure that your um, baseline is accurate, uh, that you're You've got full visibility of all of your emissions and then really focus on how do you then gear the enterprise from the board right down to then individual employees in the sustainability uh, journey. When, when we spoke before, we talked a bit about banking and finance, which me as a, you know, in, in my day-to-day life, banking, finance, insurance, they're probably not companies that you'd immediately think would have a big issue. You know, construction, airlines, travel companies you think would but it's it, i suppose it's everywhere isn't it and and it is but the, the quick the quicker people can move and totally the but the quicker it makes but the difference. interesting thing is that well the two thing two points here around financial services uh generally is that um the financial services industry as a whole is um actually one of the fastest adopters of um effect of accurate efficient emissions management both from a compliance perspective but also in the context of the market there are eight global uh value chains that account for uh, the world economy, the biggest of them being the consumer staples one. Um, But all of them run on the financial services ecosystem. And like what we're at the beginning of is that, and we see this from some of our own uh, commercial banking customers, is that doing this properly is also going to be about access to capital tomorrow. Because we see commercial banks that are like assuring um, the green credentials of their portfolios in terms of like um, their portfolio companies. We have an awful lot of private equity customers ourselves and they're assuring um, the the emissions management across the entire portfolio. Um, And that is a a massive lever for change. Um, So I really see um, from Normative's perspective that financial services is really leading the way. Um, and we also have a number of insurers now that are moving quickly in this as well. Like Zurich, for instance, put out a press release last week about like the work that we're, that we're they're doing with us in it. So, um, and if we look at the kind of lessons of history, like the role of the financial services industry in driving real change, they cannot be underestimated. Uh, so it's also underlines why collective action is so important when we talk about sustainability and we talk about responding to the planetary imperative because it's very clear from our work that no business can do this alone because um, as uh, our founder Christian often says you know you know your scope two emissions are somebody else's scope three so collective action um, is really important uh, to respond to the planetary imperative but also therein lies the seeds Giles 
of the huge collective business opportunity. And what we see is many co- companies, you know, teaming up, if you will, on the basis of having accurate carbon data to then create new markets or to um, co-invest in uh, in non-competitive processes. And we see here that sustainability can in many ways drive convergence across industries because the regulatory uh, framework is end-to-end across value chains, but then also the competitive imperative and potential potential uh, business advantage lies across that value chain as well. So that's where I start to get very excited because the benefits yeah. that can be, um, the risks can be mitigated of, mitigated, of course, in terms of avoidance of allegations of greenwashing and most importantly, uh, non-compliance, avoiding that. But then what it means in terms of future ability to engage consumers, what it means in terms of, you know, we already know that two and three employees are more likely to work for a company with strong environmental policies. We also know from, I think it was McKinsey research, that investors will pay a 10% premium for a company with a, a, a verified verifiably positive ESG record. So ultimately, who who is responsible for the collective action? The government? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Who is responsible? We are all collectively responsible, Giles. Like I- well, no, but, who, but who, where does it, I suppose who drives it, where does it come from is more, oh, okay. because I mean, you know, I, th- I, th- I think, I, think what, cause what, I love what you're saying, but it's just a question of, the onus on everybody to try and do their bit, isn't it? It is, and, and, and this is, I know, and, and on a serious note, like uh, I do see where you're coming from in this, and uh, we can't. The level of change that we, as a, as citizens, have to collectively drive cannot happen without uh, government involvement and the proper policies being in place. And we talked about some of the examples of that legislation um, earlier, and also the imperative. If I was rep- as always representing our customers, you know, the, certainly the boards yeah. that we work with would love to see global convergence around the regulatory framework because these things come with a big cost to business. But then it also um, is down to employees to hold their companies to account on sustainability. It's down to consumers to make um, responsible choices about the brands they will and won't uh, interact with. And of course, it's down to business leaders such as ourselves to lead with intent, but most importantly, lead with action around it. So there's an element of collective, but there's also, and we see this already, there is significant business advantage in moving early on this, engaging your value chain in a yeah. different way, um, converging around accurate uh, database lines, and then taking collective action around it. And the companies that are doing that are creating business advantage and competitive advantage. And do you think that, so that's interesting, so when, so when you're taking your customers on their journey, mm-hmm. you know, effectively buying your software, do you think most of them get it or do you think to start with they feel it's a necessary evil yeah. you know or, 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 or if people have people generally speaking crossed that's that a really really, I mean, really I'm, brilliant I'm, question actually and it's one of the um I often say to our own team that sustainability is the first segment I've ever worked in that you literally have such a huge diversity of buyers because you have in general the chief sustainability officers that are heavily involved in what we would call the path to purchase, but they're rarely um, the ultimate decision maker or budget holder for some of these investments. And I would say that we've seen a significant shift both um, in uh, my time at SAP uh, when sustainability, you could just see it 
starting to rise up the board agenda. Um, and yeah. uh, at that time, it was very much um, chief sustainability officers who were mostly involved. But now, if I look where we are today, on the 24th of April, we see much more chief financial officers involved. We also see um, we see the chief um, technology officers um, being involved as well, because what you're touching is sensitive data. And also a lot of these systems and the way in which the data is accessed within the company and shared externally, it hits the domain of the chief technology officer. Um, and the reason the CFO is increasingly involved is that this is about compliance and it touches the annual report. And like we also yeah. have, uh, we did a roundtable a number of weeks ago ourselves where um, I had a, a, we had a lot of um, chairs of audit um, who sit on publicly listed FTSE boards and DAX boards and like um, also in the Dow Jones in uh, North America. And it was very interesting hearing their perspectives because as non-executive directors I know this myself obviously it's um, uh, being um, on Sparn Communications Board but it, it hits the fiduciary duty of, um, of non-executive directors so you have this very interesting diversity of perspective in sustainability ranging from the board um, both the executive yeah. and the non-executive directors and then lots of functions who are involved in the collation and interrogation of this data and the reporting on it, but also then applying the impact of this data on the you know core organizational model or in the context of the CTO, yeah. what does it mean for and the reference architecture of the organization. And also what does it mean for like the systems landscape that is in place um, between the company and its value chain and its partners. Yeah. So that's kind of, I think, some of the anomalies, if you will, about the sustainability space that I'd share. Interesting as well, because I think we're going to talk in a few minutes about um, the skill shift. Mm -hmm. I suppose with what you're saying, some of that is ringing true really, because I pretty much guessed that when I left university in 1998, none of my people, from, none of my friends or acquaintances from university would have gone into, they wouldn't have left anything, right, I want, I want to get involved with sustainability. Yeah. Right, but then, but then you know, 25 years on or whatever it is, I, I bet there are loads of, you know, bright people leaving university having studied things around this and looking to get yes. into it. You know, and that's, I mean, that's, that, 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 that in itself is quite interesting because obviously the world really does evolve. And I actually remember talking to one of my kids' teachers probably about five or six years ago, and they sort of said, that, you know, your children will be doing jobs that don't actually exist yet. And I thought, yeah, it's exciting, right, actually. for you know, sure. Because cause, cause, cause tech, tech just changes things so, so quickly. So we, we first met, I can't remember what it was, but when, when we first spoke, we were looking for, um, we were recruiting for a, a European tech fund. And I know at the time that, it wasn't quite right for you and you, you, you very much wanted to go and work for, you know, continue being a COO again in, in another organization rather than working for a PE or an investment fund or whatever. But you were very, very clear on what you were looking for, very focused on the type of fund and organizations that you wanted to be part of in terms of their sort of style relationship mm -hmm. with the CEOs and, and the founders. So just interestingly, going through that process, what, what were your observations? Yes, I love this question. And I really did put an awful lot of thought in it, not least because, uh, you know, I've, 
um, had an amazing, amazingly enjoyable uh, career to date working yeah. so from, for wonderful firms such as SAP and Capgemini and the rest. Um, but for me, and this also goes, I think, right to the heart of the skill shift um, in that there were three things I was really thinking about, uh, category, culture and context. So what I mean by that is that... Um, you know, I really, I just love technology and uh, yeah. absolutely love it. Like, it comes through. I just, I just I think <laughs> it's just, oh, and I, I mostly love it because of the emotional aspect and what it means for people, because that's most of what I care about. I care about products and I care about people, both in all our messy reality, you know, and I love seeing how people, including myself, you know, behave in times of chaos, like both the good, the bad yeah. and the ugly. And I love yeah. trying to put order on chaos. Like that's, you know, my essential skills. <laughs> but um, in category, like uh, also number one, um, there are so few areas left in the world now that haven't yet been kind of solved in virtual commas by technology. And I really wanted a greenfield space. And one of the last things that I worked on SAP um, was sustainability. And to be honest with you, Giles, I found myself getting, I worked, uh, getting so excited, like that gut feel that to be honest, mm. I hadn't felt that kind of gut excitement since um, probably about 10 years before when digital, all the front end systems of engagement were being digitized. And like, yeah. and I, I'm, a, I'm mad about MarTech, like I absolutely love that. So enterprise AI, MarTech and sustainability are the three things that really get me going. And, but sustainability, what I saw, what some of my ex-customers were doing in the area of sustainability. And I think like, like a lot of people, and this also goes to, I think, um, the world of work today. You know, I've got two young boys and I was beginning to feel that I wanted I wanted to get up every day and I wanted to be able to tell my children when they grow up that I use my own skills such that they are, you know, uh, such that they are, aren't on any given day to at least attempt to create a better yeah. the world, the better place. And, you know, we know um, from all those studies and research that young people in particular now in the world of work are really seeking purpose and post-pandemic are feeling strongly the absence of purpose. And one of the most magical things, honestly, I use that word purposefully, is that Normative, that honestly you get up every day feel really good about yourself and then yeah, and yeah. then also the energy in the company and also the type of customers we're working with because you know they're they, they tend to be obviously brands but also individuals who they're just stoked about that you know we have an opportunity to do the right thing and affect change um but also from a financial perspective you know the you know i mean what i say in terms of i'm also very much a business person and like i, I specialize in creating those growth businesses um, and scaling them out. And I just, I can see this is only going one way. And yeah. the opportunity that we have um, to uh, work in this space and create interesting companies and new segments and for value creations, that was number one category. But the second thing I was looking for was culture. So I'm a hardcore believer in culture as competitive advantage, and I really understand how to build it. And I've done it successfully mm -hmm. six times, all in hyperscale environments. Um, yeah. And that is both for what was important to me around when I was going to market, but also to your point on the skill shift, because I would wager 
answer, Giles, that executives tomorrow will not be able to be relevant. And in terms of, you know, answer the question, why would anyone buy me? They will not be able to answer that question if they do not understand culture as competitive advantage and how to build, you know, psychologically safe organizations that are meaningful and provide a meaningful worker experience for multi-generational workers, um, but also are able to leverage that culture in the context of business value creation and business performance. So I was looking for a very particular culture um, and also as part of that, just being very honest, I'm incredibly grateful to the hyperscale companies I've worked for. Um, but I really was at a point in my own career where I was like, I want to go to market and find a founder because what I do is I yeah. build businesses. You know, that's what and I was looking for. Um, a founder that was the you know academic, if you will, and the deep expert within the spaces I wanted to work with. And that, and that was how I went to market. And to be honest, now, I think I mentioned to you a chat before, Giles. We had such fun. I had such fun on the journey. I met with um, something like over 75 founders, amazing people. I met with lots of funds. And I also, you know, met with loads of my network, just saying, what are you doing? What are you seeing? Uh, What does the market look like for you? And like, that was, to be honest, also one of the most life-affirming things I've ever done. Not least because I think all of us probably felt a bit post-pandemic disconnected and from a uh, an emotional perspective. It was just wonderful to reconnect with some people yeah. I hadn't spoken to in 15 years. So category, culture, looking for a very particular type of founder who had a very particular ethical outlook on the world and philosophical position and also um, was very com- was committed in that and really understood from a, an academic sense the segment. And I uh, was lucky enough that I met with fantastic people and I found the perfect fit in Christian Ron, yes. um, who is the founder uh, at uh, Normative and teamed up with him whereby I, I get to do what I love, which is building the businesses. And then the last point that I applied was around context. You know, it was really important to me that like the businesses I was talking with and also the funds I was meeting with, they understood the business context and how technology applies within that context. And, mm. you know, it was a little bit shocking to me. Uh, some of the individuals I met that I, I really felt had no understanding of um, what this means for boards and business mm. decision making. And the most, uh, uh, that was a huge part of my decision criteria as well to work with them. Um, funds and a founder who really understood that uh, the way that we can deliver outcomes and change is by getting business to move. But then you have to be able to um, simplify very complex things in that what does it mean for shareholder value? What does it mean for, you know, return on marketing investment? What does it mean for board behavior and decision making? And then the last thing in that bit around culture and context as well was passion. You know, I'm a really passionate person and I'm super driven. And I really believe that, you know, as a human, I believe that passion is limitless, but also other people's passion is completely infectious and um you know i was looking for an environment where i can you know bring my passion and then you know yeah. link it with others and then you know create that case for change so there are the three lots, things I'm lo- looking lots, at. lots of lessons lots of lessons in there for people right just sort of take the time take a step back 100 re- re- really think about what it is that you yeah. like what it is you want to do what you get your 100 your excitement from i mean it sounds like you've Absolutely nailed it. Time well, wise, everything. You've, you've, yeah. But I will say as well, like I think, it'd be an interest, like maybe you know, more vulnerable insight for everybody. I, from a personal perspective, I was um, surprised how challenging I found going through the process to 
not just jump into, you know, the kind of things I'd done before, like, you know, to yeah. go to another hyperscale company or like, you know, do and do the similar type of thing. And um, it was very interesting and also a real great opportunity for personal development to kind of go, ooh, the dis- to sit with the discomfort I felt because I'm an ex-management consultant. You know, I started working at Accenture. Yeah. I like, I like to, you know, know what's next and, you know, and uh, sitting with the discomfort of, ooh, what will I do? And also saying no, um, turning down some wonderful jobs because I had promised myself that I would be courageous in doing something different. And also, um, again, as a business person, I was looking at my own future value proposition and going, hmm, I, like, I believe that uh, executives with deep experience of monetizing sustainability business and really understanding how ESG applies in boards and in businesses, those people are going to be future-proofed in the market of tomorrow. So yeah. that was also part of my decision-making as well, just from a you know Maggie Boogie P&L perspective. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I know. Totally right. Yeah, very, very exciting. It's amazing, really. Yeah, it really is. Right. So we're asking every interview this this same last question and you've probably you, you've probably got a great answer to this because you've you've touched on so many things i love the way that we we, st- we, st- we started off by um talking about chaos creating opportunity mm-hmm. and then you kind of brought it all the way back around to chaos and opportunity again there really but um <laughs> so, so so um same last question and we'll 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 collate the answers to see if there's a common thread and they'll all be published as a, a blog post on alexpartners-search.com but that question is what would you tell your 20-year-old self now? You know, it's quite a colloquial thing, but like uh, uh, I would tell my 20-year-old self that uh, life is so fun, take risks, yeah. uh, and take no SH1T from anyone ever. Yeah. <laughs> and also uh, just, you know, find your courage always because uh, I yeah. wish I'd known that then. Because one of the things that I'm a very happy person, touch wood, and um, yeah. part of that is that... Uh, as I got to be a more, you know, experienced executive, you know, uh, you're most proud about the moments where I found courage and I delivered the most change. And most importantly, yeah. when I did it with other people, because that's all yeah. that matters, really. You know, health, you know, be happy, be healthy, have an impact. So if you're passionate about it and you're doing it every day with a big smile on your face and you're springing out of bed, you've probably you've probably got it right on you. Finally, Maggie, if people want to find out more about you and what Normative do, where is the best place for them to go to? Well, they can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn and also normative.io, our website. Very good. Thank you so much indeed for your time. That's been absolutely brilliant. Very, very enjoyable. And uh, just, yeah, just so nice to talk to somebody who's so passionate about what they do. It's, it's a amazing. pleasure. Thank brilliant. you for the opportunity, Giles. And um, to everyone listening, thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. I've been your host, Giles Daniels. Stay subscribed and join us for a new episode of The Tech Space soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.